is so rich. We're not going to be able to do that, so I'm going to try and sum everything up in, in, in the next two messages, which I think is okay because Peter's been painting a lot of broad brush strokes. You know, my, in my other job, I do a lot of consulting. I paint a lot of big blue arrows up there because sometimes people get lost in the details. And sometimes you need to see the big blue arrows of where things are going. And I, last week, as, as we were working through the message, I realized that the vision of this church is, is really there in what Peter's talking about. He's giving instructions to his readers in 1 Peter. Christians, and you know, we've, we've said that they were scattered throughout what we now know as, as modern Turkey, up in that area of the world, scattered in, in small communities. They were on the margins of society, maybe not persecuted uh, just yet, although Nero was on the, the throne in Rome, and all of that was coming. And they knew that was coming. They knew the ugliness of the Roman Empire could inflict upon those who they considered their enemies, and so they knew that was coming, and Peter's preparing them. So they're already living on the margins of society, as most Christians generally do, I think. It's very hard to be at the center of society if you're truly living out your faith. So he writes to them about how to live a a life well. And he started off talking about live well now, suffer now for glory later. We're going to come back to that theme next week as we wrap up 1 Peter. Live well now, suffer well now, put up with it now, glorify God now for more glory later. We don't really like that, do we? In the end, we we want glory now and more glory later. No suffering. We don't want any of it. But that's not how it works. And so we need to look at this morning, how do we continue to live well for the glory of God, to see how what Peter tells his readers, how it impacts us. And behind all of this is the idea of mission, right? Because Jesus gives the great commission to every one of us who come into the faith. None of us are exempt from that. You maybe don't have to go to Panama, or you don't have to go to Mexico, but what we're going to see this morning is that I think Peter's really telling his folks, live well now, suffer well now, and find yourselves on mission every day. And he says, that's going to come out of this understanding, and Peter repeats himself so many times, who you are determines what you do. Remember, he told us, you go through the the, the opening chapters, he says, you've been chosen by God for an inheritance. For eternal life. Now, that's not floating around on clouds up there, you know, in heaven and hearing harps and living a life of luxury. No, you've been chosen to be resurrected at the coming of Jesus Christ to live eternally in a body that never perishes. What an inheritance we have. You know, they, there's this old saying that people always say, if you don't have your health, you don't have anything. Put that in the context of the resurrection. If you don't have a body that lives forever, what do you have? You have nothing. That's the inheritance that we get, that we're promised. That inheritance is kept for us. It's kept in heaven, and we are kept for it. We're born again to this living hope. Peter tells us, reminds us that we've been adopted as obedient children to a different way of life. One that reflects God's glory and character to this sin-sick, dying world. That we've been separated and set apart 
In fact, he says, be holy as I am holy. Remember, we talked about that. We're kind of recapping to get to this point today. Peter reminds his people, be holy as I am holy. What does God mean? He doesn't mean go get a checklist of things to say this is how I, how I act. He says, be separate and distinct and live like I live and believe what I believe. Loving one another fervently from the heart. Longing for the pure milk of the word to grow up in respect to salvation. Proclaiming the excellencies of God by our attitudes of submission and humility. We talked about this last week. That's how the world sees that we love each other and we're living for the glory of God when we submit in respect and humility. In the face of oppression and conflict in the world and the rulers and authorities and in the workplace uh, to bosses and masters if if you were a slave back then and finally at home with husbands and wives. And all of that shows the world the glory of God. And he reminds them that they were a people of God. They were not a people. Now they are. He reminds them they had not received mercy and now they have. And that's got to make a difference in your life. And so before we even kind of start into the text this morning, I want us to have a, a little paradigm shift this morning. Work with me. I want you to rethink and maybe redefine a little bit of what you think church is. If I asked you this morning, what is church, right? Don't go look at your notes. Boom. What do you say? What is church? What's the first words out of your mouth? That's because you've heard me say this before. (laughs) Most people would say what? It's a building. What else is it? Body of Christ. What else is it? If you ask the average person on the street, average Christian on the street, what is church? Define it. What would they tell you? It's a place. It's a building. Maybe it's an event. Maybe it's a time. Yeah, we do church at 10 over here. And so what I want to try and point out this morning as we head into the scripture is to think of church differently. Not a place. Not a time not an event. It is people living out the glory of God. That's what church is. He uses a lot of symbolism in the Old Testament to kind of to bring that out. And so as we, as we think about re-church, maybe not only rethink church, but rethink the mission of the church. If I said missionary, okay, same game. If I said missionary, what's the first thing you think of? Africa. Yeah. Cool, Africa. Nobody said Panama. <clears throat> what else? What else? I say missionary. What do you think? Overseas, right. Work. Work, yeah. A person, typically another person, right? Did anybody think me? Somebody did. I hope you did. I hope some did. If you heard me speak on this, I hope you remember. Yeah, if I say missionary, you ought to be thinking, that's me. Why? Jesus gave the Great Commission to all of us. In fact, I think we need to identify ourselves this morning again as a family of missionaries who serve. Right? Adopted, born again into God's family. Adopted, brothers and sisters, family, missionaries, because we've been given the great commission, have we not? Everybody's job is to go make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. 
And we serve because that's what we see Scripture telling us how we live out our lives. Because Jesus came to serve, not to be served. That's who we are. That's our identity. That's how we need to live out our lives as a family of missionary servants. And Peter keeps telling us to think about ourselves differently, about our identity. He tells us about our expectations in this life, suffering now, glory later. Christians, plug that in. That's our jobs. Suffer now, glory later. Are you good with that? Or do you want glory now and more glory later? He tells us about our relationships that got to change. We need to love each other differently than the world loves. We've got to treat each other differently than the world treats each other. Our mission as this family, living in a world where we, we live well, we talked about this last week, living good and attractive lives, that the world goes, oh my gosh, how do you guys live like that? How do you treat each other like that? And in the end, we get to do what? Give them the reason for our hope, which is what we're going to talk about this morning. Something about everyday mission is what I want us to talk about today. Everyday mission. <clears throat> I think it comes in three parts. There's a strategy for it that we've got to start rethinking re our paradigms. What is the strategy for doing everyday mission? What do the actions of everyday mission look like? What do I do differently to be on mission every day? And finally, what is the motivation behind all of that. So if you have your Bibles, open to chapter 3 of 1 Peter. That's where we're going this morning. What does Peter show us about how to live out our lives, good and attractive lives, in the face of conflict and oppression and maybe even persecution? It's not here yet, but boy, y'all look at the world. Maybe it's coming. Are you ready for it? We need to be ready. So Peter says in Chapter 3, let's pray first before we do that. We open up the word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for uh, the final couple of weeks that we get to look at First Peter. Thank you for these magnificent thoughts that Peter displays to us about who you are and what you've done for us and what you're asking us to do and how we go about it. Father, help us to see your idea of mission through this passage today, I pray in Jesus' name. Peter starts off in verse 8 of chapter 3. Remember, he's just gone through all of these, how do you submit, how do you be humble, how do you live well, how do you live a good and attractive life, how do you let the world see you living differently. And so he says in chapter 3, verse 8, to sum up, or finally, some of your Bibles might say, and he's not talking about the end of the letter yet, we're not there yet, he's talking about that passage about what does it mean to live well, to live good and attractive lives. To sum up, he says... All of you be harmonious and sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, <clears throat> not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. That's the old turn the other cheek, isn't it? For you were called, called, called for this very purpose, to turn the other cheek, to give a blessing when persecuted. You were called to do that, family of missionary servants so that you might inherit the blessing. Suffer now, glory later. Y'all see it. He repeats himself over and over. This is the missional strategy that he's trying to lay out for us. Live lives that will show people who God is. Remember, he's saying, proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into light. We talked about that 
last week, back up in chapter 2, verse 11, when he said, uh, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts. How do you do that? Pursue the things of God. Pursue godly interests. He's talking about a missional strategy to live life in society under the authority of rulers, under the authority of those in the workplace, um, under authority of home between husbands and wives. He's saying, here's how you live your life out. And he says here in verses 8 and 9, live this way, harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit. That sounds really good, doesn't it? Because in contrast to a self-serving society, which is what we kind of live in now, we are, we Christians are to live in harmony together, in union together. Why? Put it in context of the mission. Because loving each other well and being set apart for the purpose of loving the brethren and living this way in a hostile context is going to provoke questions. Questions that people have about their lives compared to what they see you doing. And here's the strategy. Here's the new strategy in this paradigm that I want us to start considering. We do not live good lives like what he's talking about here that will just enable us to make relationships with friends and family just so that we can invite them to an evangelistic event. Don't think that's the only reason you're making relationships is so that you can invite them to church or invite them to a rally or, uh, uh, a, you know, Something happening in, a, in, in town somewhere, a Christian event. We need to see this morning that our lives are the evangelistic event. Y'all see it. Live this way so that when they see you, they ask questions, and you get to tell them about how you have this hope. That's where we're going. That's where Peter's going. Our lives together... Together, together are the apologetic, not individuals. Together we live out the life that is the apologetic to the world. We need to affirm and celebrate ordinary Christians living ordinary lives if you're living your life like this. And this is where the rubber meets the road, by the way. Peter's really getting down to brass tacks. This is where the mission that we've been given in Matthew 28 really starts to live itself out. It's a paradigm shift for you today. When we think of evangelism, we should not think first of a service. We should not think first of classes about how to share the faith. We should not think first about street preaching or door-to-door type handing out tracts and asking people what's going on in their life. Don't think about that first, although those things aren't necessarily bad. Here's what I want you to do when we start talking about evangelism. Start putting this paradigm shift in. Start thinking about Nikki down at the beach that you know, that you hang out with. Start thinking about Jim in the office that you spend every day with. Start thinking about Mary serving a meal to her husband and what's going on in their marriage. Think about those ways you can get close to people so that you can be the evangelistic event in their life. Are you all following me? You tracking with me, as they would say. Everyday mission. Everyday mission. Think of all the activities that make up your life. A lot of you would say, if I asked you, do you have an exciting life? You might say, mm, it's pretty normal. 
I'm a pretty normal person. It's pretty mundane most of the time. Really? There's a lot of things that you do daily that are prime everyday mission candidates. Think how you go to work, how you get to work, maybe. Or where you are when you eat your meals, or what chores need to be done. Walking the dog can be an evangelistic event. Playing with the kids out in the park. There are weekly things that we all do. Maybe we go grocery shopping. Maybe there's TV programs that we all like to gather around. Maybe it's football Sunday afternoon. There's something that we do every week that we like to get together and do. Maybe we go to the gym once or twice a week. Maybe there's soccer that's got to be done. There's hobbies. There's golfing. There's surfing. There's something going on in your life that maybe it's not every day, but it's, it's something fairly frequently. And so on and so forth. And not everything we do is meant to be done with someone else. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to say... Drop everything and don't do anything unless you can get somebody else to do it with you. That is not what I'm saying. But there's many times when we can start thinking about doing things differently where we can start making relationships. And I'm going somewhere with this. I'm just trying to prepare your paradigm so that when I get to the passage, you'll see it very clearly. So let me ask you this. Have you ever thought about knocking on a friend's door as you're walking the dog to see if maybe they just want to go with you? Maybe they need to get out and walk a little bit. You ever thought about that? Ever think about offering your elderly neighbor a ride somewhere or helping them with the groceries as you see them coming up the steps or getting in the garage? You ever just say, hey, can I help you? These things seem so like natural and normal, and, and yet I think so many times we find ourselves so engrossed in what I've got to do next, what I've got to do next, what I've got to do next. I don't look around me to see what I can do for someone else. You ever team up with fellow members of your Christian family and go ride to work together maybe or go hang out in the world together? Here's my point. Number one, as we head into this discussion of everyday mission, none of those things I'm talking about are additional, are they? There's things that you do all the time anyway. So here's the difference. Here's the strategy for everyday mission that Peter's going to show us here in a minute. They're not additional, they're intentional. You see the difference? I don't really have to do a whole lot of different stuff. I just need to be very intentional about what I do. I have to be aware of what I do and where I'm doing it. Everyday things in everyday life with renewed purpose and intentionality. That's the strategy. Everybody got it? Okay, so he says there's the strategy. He says then in verse 13, drop down to that, as he's talked about how to live that way in the world. Very interesting. He says, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? That sounds like a big encouragement, doesn't it? But even if you should suffer, there's that word again, suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. He's talking about there and them and someone else, the world, looking at what you're doing. This kind of harkens back to, to Psalm 118 is where Peter's drawing his reference from. Let me read Psalm 118 to you real quick. This is where I think Peter's getting his, his reference. He says, uh, the psalmist says, from my distress, I called upon the Lord. From this tight place is what the Hebrew would be saying. From this tight place, I'm, 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 I'm pressed in and crushed in, and I called out to the Lord. 
And the Lord answered me and set me in a large place. That's kind of a Hebrew uh, way of saying he's released me. He's freed me. The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. There I will, therefore, I will look with satisfaction on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. And so Peter is saying, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? What can man do to you? Who do you have to fear? Harkens back to the most oft-quoted command in all of Scripture. Y'all know what it is, right? What is it? Do not fear. Most oft-quoted command in Scripture. Do not fear. Now, I'm not talking about the fear when someone puts a gun to your head, right? When you jump around the corner and you get mugged or something. Yeah, it's okay to be afraid of that. That's not what I'm talking about. That's normal fear. I'm talking about the fear of them, whoever them are here in the passage, in the world, and their intimidation. That's the fear that we're talking about. And we all experience that from time to time. I heard a story once about a certain preacher that had a, a flight, used to fly around a lot. I, I, I understand where he's coming from. He had a bad flight, those bumpy flights, really going bad. You know, you don't know if the wings are going to fall off. And he had a really bumpy flight one time, and it really scared him. And they can scare you, you know. And, and he hated airplanes. And what, one time he, he sat down to a calm passenger who noticed the preacher was really nervous before this flight took off. And, Why are you afraid, preacher? The guy asked him. Doesn't that Bible of yours say God is with you always? Well, that's not exactly what the Bible says, the preacher said. The Bible says, lo, I am with you always. <laughs> lo. Here's what Peter's saying. It's clear that our actions in the world should look so different from the world that it will cause intimidation. You'll intimidate them. And they will re react back to you. Don't fear that. This is what he's saying. It will cause them, the world, as they watch you live this way, to be troubled. Don't fear that. It will cause them to look at their own lives and see what is missing. It will cause them to even possibly want to persecute Christians, which happens in the rest of the world every day. Do our lives look like that? Do we even want to suffer, Peter says, for the sake of righteousness? Don't let that word just slip through here. Circle that word righteousness. Remember, the righteousness we're talking about is not clean living. It's not checking the box and saying, I behave a certain way that looks righteous when I compare myself to the, uh, the shenanigans going around us. That's not what we're talking about. Righteousness that he's talking about that we suffer for is the only attribute that will allow us to stand in front of a holy and righteous God without which we can never see him. And you can't earn that on your own. That's what the gospel says. It's the only attribute which we must have or we will never see God. The gospel says there's no way to obtain that on our own. It is provided to us and for us only by Jesus Christ and faith in him. Isn't that wonderful? You have it. You believe. Christ says, here, I'm covering you with my righteousness. Welcome to the family. 
Think about words like atonement, imputation, justification. Don't just gloss over that word righteousness. Let your eyes stay on that word just for a moment. Even if you should suffer for that, you are blessed if you understand what that brings you in the end. So again, Peter states, what we do in the world, the lives we live in the world should be noticed by the world. Are they? Is your life noticed in the world, how you live different? And here's the reason why we should live well. Here's the reason why we should do this. Here is the everyday mission that Peter is talking about, living good and attractive lives and to love each other like Christ loves us and long for the pure milk of the world, the word that is in our hearts and minds. Look at verse 15. But this, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for, what, for doing what is right than for doing what is wrong. Uh, this, this verse here, verse 15, probably a very misunderstood verse today. Uh, it even can be frustrating sometimes because this verse promises us so much. And we want to do it because we think it says so much to us that we have a hard time with it, and it's very frustrating. For those of us, and I am one of them, I am one of you non-introverted uh, or introverted non-evangelists. I cannot go out on the street corners and preach. That is not who I am. I can't go into the Walmart parking lot and hand out tracts and talk to people as they come out the door. I can't do that. And yet we sometimes read this verse and we're like, okay, well, we need to be able to. We want to share the gospel with those around us that we see struggling. We want to turn every conversation into a gospel conversation. Is there anybody else like that here this morning that has a hard time doing that? Thank you. There's a few honest folks out there. However, in this verse, the focus is not upon you starting conversations. It's upon the other person asking you about it. Did you see that? Let's read it again. Verse 15. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you, who asks you to give an account of the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. In other words, Peter says, at some point, if you're living your life like this, somebody's going to come up to you and ask you, what is going on in your life? Do you believe that? That's awesome. I like that everyday mission evangelism. I like that. Because that takes the onus off of me to go around asking people on the streets what they think about Jesus. Grammar is such a big part of Bible study, and a significant part of the problem is correctly interpreting verses, right? We all know that. And maybe it's not so much a deficiency in, in grammar as much as a deficiency in our church culture today. Western culture, Bible culture, Christian culture is so aggressively individualistic. It affects how we read and study our Bibles. Because every time we read you in the Bible, we assume it means 
me. But Peter means we here, not simply because more than one person is being addressed, because Peter is talking to his readers as a community. He's he's talking to them as a family. You all live this together, not you individually. So when people ask you, it's asking you, family, how do you live this way? So 1 Peter 3.15 is the culmination of a line of thought that began with Peter saying in verse 8, to sum up all of you, be harmonious and sympathetic and brotherly and kind-hearted and humble in spirit. Remember what we said earlier, in contrast to a self-serving society like the world lives today, I just want mine, just give me my peace, you know, I want my part of the action, it's my documents, it's iPhone, have it your way. It's all over the place, isn't it? In contrast to living that way, Peter says, live in harmony. Live as one. Live well together. And when you do that, it will provoke the questions of 1 Peter 3.15. It is the good works of the church community and its life in the face of suffering that provokes questions about what we put our hope in and what we build our identity around. And, and, and when others get exposed to this community of grace as we live life together like this, people start to see the followers of Jesus were energized by something different. And this means that although we can do mission on our own, we can go off and do our own thing, primarily that's not the main strategy. I don't see Peter saying that here. I think he's saying just the opposite, that we need to be part of communities doing mission together, communities preaching the gospel together, communities that live like this, and the world sees how we live, and all they got to do is ask us, what hope do you have? Boy, it takes the pressure off me as an individual, doesn't it? But it puts the pressure on me to live life with you, to live it well, to be harmonious and brotherly and kind-hearted and sympathetic. You can't be those things on your own, by the way. It takes another person to be kind-hearted, too. It takes another person to be harmonious with. Peter's not talking about you as individuals. He's talking about you together in everyday life. Live this way so that the world sees it. A gospel community. It's a network of relationships. Maybe there's a regular meeting. Maybe there's not. Probably sharing stuff throughout the week. Maybe it's house groups around a Bible study. But as we provide witness to the gospel change in our lives to this lost and dying world, we make relationships and share Jesus with them, sometimes they're going to come to faith when we do that. Sometimes they are. And Peter's going to talk about that here in just a minute. Sometimes when we live our life like that, people get saved and we have a baptism. We we celebrate like we're going to celebrate in a few weeks. Sometimes it results in rejection. People don't understand. They don't get it. Maybe they don't want to ask. But you tell them anyway... You you carry the message anyway. You live that way anyway, but they still reject you. you got to be okay with that too. In fact, he talks about that. That happened in the day of Noah. Look at verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. That's the gospel. In which also he, Christ, went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. 
Now, a lot of people like to say, well, Christ went into prison, into hell, and preached to the spirits that were in hell. I don't think that's what this passage says. It says that the spirit of Christ preached through Noah to the people back in his day, the gospel that they heard, which was repent and get on this ark. And they saw Noah living this out. Noah was, was living this way. Noah was living the way that God told him to live. And the people saw that. And they, maybe they asked questions. Maybe they didn't. But what happened was only eight of them got on the ark. Corresponding to that, verse 21, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Baptism, he says, that was a, it was a symbol of the, of the washing of the world and the destruction of the world, the old passing away, the new and the ark coming through it. It's a symbol of what God was doing in the world. Baptism is the same kind of symbol. It makes it very clear. You're not saved through baptism. It's a symbol of what has already happened to you. And we're going to celebrate that November 9th. As we provide witness to the gospel change in our lives to a lost and dying world, and we make relationships and share Jesus, sometimes people get saved, and sometimes we baptize them. Sometimes... They reject us, and like in the days of Noah, they're now in prison because they rejected the message that God had for them. And the gospel message is about a new world, just like it was in the day of Noah. The gospel message is about a new life in a new context, with a new reality, with new bodies. So it was in the day of Noah when he gave the message and the offer of God's repentance and rescue, and he suffered for it. Noah suffered for the message that he gave. Because the Spirit of Christ was in him preaching to those people at that time. And all those folks witnessed what he was doing. And all those folks saw it. They heard what he was saying. They asked him, what are you doing this for? Why are you living this way? Why are you building that? See the context? You see the comparison to what Peter's telling us to do? To have a hope and a life and do things differently? So that people ask us, why do you believe that? Why are you doing that? And unfortunately, in Noah's day, out of all those people, we don't know how many there were in the world, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, we don't really know. But out of all of them in the world, only eight came through the water. So what kind of actions, then, would we want to say we look at for everyday mission? What kind of things could we do? Give an example of Noah and what he did. What can we do today? You know, Jonathan Dodson from Austin City Life Church in Texas, he says this, to be missional is not an event we tack onto our already busy lives. It is our life. Mission should be the way we live, not something we add on to life. We can be missional in everyday ways without ever overloading our schedules. Do you believe that today? Do you believe you're a missionary and you don't have to do anything extra? Here's some examples. We have how many wheel, meals a week if you were to eat like a healthy, normal person? 21. Very good. Yeah. No snacks, just three meals a day. 21 meals a week. How many of them do you eat with non-Christians? Let's just try one. Just invite some non-Christian to lunch or dinner to your house or wherever. One time a week. Eat with them. Let them see how you, how you live. 
You know, we live in a community where you can take bikes and walk so many places. And I, I get lazy sometimes, too. You know, I don't know why sometimes I feel like I've got to drive down to Clayton's to get a burger. Or something. I don't know. I need to start walking more and riding my bike more, okay? So I'm guilty of that. But I'm saying we need to do that because somewhere along the road from here down to Clayton's, I'm going to walk into somebody. I'm going to ride a bike next to somebody. Somebody's going to be out in their yard. I can stop and talk with them. I was going to Clayton's anyway. Stop and talk with them a little bit. Strike up a conversation. We live in a community where it's very easy to be a regular person at Starbucks or Panera Bread or wherever your local establishment is, Clayton's. Be a regular there. Get to know the people that are in there. Get to know the people that work there. Why? So that I can have an opportunity at some point for them to ask me something about my life that they see. And I can tell them about the hope that is in me. You ever hang out with non-Christians? You ever hang out with the pagans? It's okay. You can do that. In fact, a lot of times, pagans are more fun than regular Christians. They're having fun in the world. It's kind of sad. We'll talk about that in a minute. It's okay. Hang out with the pagans once in a while. Go, go be at the beach with them or go be at the soccer fields with them or go, go somewhere with them. Your friends at work. You have friends at work that don't believe. Find a way to be with them. Hang out with them. Talk to your coworkers about something other than what's got to be done for that day or that week. Here's one. How about volunteer with nonprofits? I know a lot of you do. I'm very blessed to have folks here who work uh, either at a nonprofit or, or they work as a volunteer. And that's awesome. That's an awesome way to be in the world and to let people get to know who you are. And a lot of you like to do that anyway. Participate in city events. We have so many city events here we could be part of. And I think so many times we choose to not go because we don't really want to be involved or we just, we already did our Christian thing for the week and so we're done with that. We have a city where we can really be involved and do things. And how about serving your neighbors? How about seeing somebody next door who needs help with something? Just say, hey, can I help you? Hey, is there anything I can do for you? Something very simple like that. Everyday mission strategy brings us to everyday mission actions. It's not a law. It's not something you have to do. It's not a list of things we must do. It comes from the right motivation. What is the right motivation? What is the everyday mission motivation? Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Talking about motivation, purpose. Because he suffered, because he did these things, you should be ready to do them too. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality and lust and drunkenness and carousing and drinking parties and abominable idolatries. In all of this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. They see you live your life different, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead, for the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, though that they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. It's talking about dead people who hear the gospel and become alive. 
Here's what Peter's saying. Once again, he's reiterating, don't live like the pagans. He's not saying to do that. Live good lives that are attractive, that display our mission, that display our newfound freedoms and our newfound love. We need to understand our identity and our mission, and we need to realize that we have the power to no longer live in the flesh and the lust of the world, but instead live for the will of God. Now, some of you may have had a real pagan past like mine. Some of you may have. I was a bad man, did a lot of bad things. And maybe you really associate with with chapter 4, verse 3. I really do. For the time already is sufficient. You know what? That's what I tell them. I don't need to do that kind of stuff anymore. I've already done all that. Been there, done that. Wasted my life on those activities already. Don't need to waste it anymore. And many of you know, I've already talked about the pain and the heartache and the brokenness that comes from living life like that, because that's all you're going to get out of that, by the way. You live life like that in the world, you're going to get pain and heartache and brokenness. Guaranteed. All you're going to get out of a life like that. That's where they all end up. Brokenness and loss and depression and sadness, and the list goes on. Peter is reminding us that since Christ suffered in the flesh, we would expect to suffer as well, and don't live like that, and don't worry about when they malign you because you don't. Suffer well. As it is with Christ, so it will be with us. Boy, there's a good one to write in the margin, isn't it? As it is with Christ, so it will be with us. Jesus said that's what's going to happen, didn't he? Because they hate me, they're going to hate you too. Because you live like me, they're not going to like that. And if you join yourself to Christ in his suffering in the flesh, you will have ceased from sin. It won't, it won't have its power over you anymore. You'll have victory over the temptations of the world. Last week we said that uh, that was one of the ways that we, that we live good and attractive lives, to turn away from that mess and turn towards pursuing godly lives, to turn it to something else, godly living. And so there's that context for motivation we want to close this morning and look at three things that we can use for motivation to be everyday missionaries. It's about a relationship. And the core elements are this, loving Jesus, loving people, and loving life. Love Jesus. You know, our enthusiasm for evangelism doesn't begin with the act of evangelism. You know, if someone's just telling you to go out and evangelize, you know, ultimately you're going to feel useless. You're going to be driven by guilt because we tried turning all the conversations to, to the gospel at work, right? Well, they're talking about the football. Well, let's figure out how to turn football into a discussion of the cross. Yeah, that's just not going to be real easy to do. And it's probably not going to work. It's going to feel very awkward. And in the end, they're going to say, and you're going to feel guilty because now I blew it. I couldn't have, Jesus, I'm sorry. You know, or we go down, we knock on a few doors, and nobody wants to talk to us. I'm like, well, I didn't really want to knock on the doors anyway, but I know i got to do that because that's part of being an evangelist, and so I'm going to knock on my neighbor's doors. Nobody wants to talk to me. I'm a failure at evangelism. Guilty. Again. Oh, my gosh. That's horrible. Here's what is infectious. Love and passion and enthusiasm. That's infectious, and that's attractive. And we see that in every, everywhere in life, don't we? Right? If you're doing something and you're hanging out with people and they're all like, this is really boring. You just feel like getting up and doing it even twice as hard, don't you? No, you're ready to go home and you've checked out. 
you know, the whole atmosphere just goes flat. But if someone is excited about what they're doing, it draws us to them. We want to participate in that with them. Are you excited about Jesus? Enthusiasm increases interest and passion breeds passion. Enthusiasm increases interest and passion breeds passion. Don't need no more laws. Don't need any more rules. Don't need any more expectations about how to live out our faith. Because if we're not careful, they quickly become a formal routine duty that just sucks the energy right out of your life. joy of the Lord is our strength. There is no joy just obeying rules. Enthusiasm for evangelism begins with an enthusiasm for Jesus. And loving Jesus means he matters to me more than other people. Loving Jesus means that his opinion is the one that counts. Loving Jesus is not a technique. Don't think about how you communicate a passion for Jesus to others. Just be passionate about him. Meditate on him until he captures your heart. Meditate on Jesus till he just captures your heart. Maybe he needs to be captured fresh because you've kind of gotten burned out on how to live this life. Love Jesus. Number two, love people. Following closely after loving Jesus is loving people. That's one I struggle with. I've gotten a lot better at that in the last few years. And y'all are helping me do that. You cannot see the masses out there as just fodder for some kind of evangelistic service and targets for gospel tracts. They've got to be people that we can love. And the love of Jesus that we show them will take care of their emotional and physical and and social needs because the gospel love that we show them is the greatest need that they have to know God through Christ. And true love, right, if you really love someone, you're always going to want to introduce them to our greatest friend, like Lynn just sang about this morning. You're going to want to talk to them about your greatest friend, Jesus. Not a technique, again, it's not a technique that you have to learn. You know, there's a lot of people who get excited about mission and community, but they don't love people. You can't have one without the other. They love the idea of community, but they don't love the real people that make up that community. It's some kind of fantasy world they've put together out there. They love missiology and going out into the nations, but they don't love the real people that they encounter when they're in the nations. And this morning, I want to challenge you. If you don't feel a love for people, hopefully for your brothers and sisters first, because that's the command, love the brethren fervently from the heart. Hopefully, that's where you got to start. Then the other people that are around you, if you do not feel a love for people, then pray, pray, pray that God just melts your heart. It's a good prayer, isn't it? Jesus loved people, died for them, incurred the wrath of God for them. Maybe we need to rethink how we love people. Maybe there's some specific people that you need to be praying for. Maybe it's persons in your life. Maybe it's a people group. Pray for them and how you can be part of their life. Not additional things, intentional. It's not additional, it's intentional in life. And finally, so love Jesus, love people, and then love life. We need to be people who love life. 
life that God, yes, it's broken world, and yes, it's far from ideal, and yes, we're looking forward to that day when all things are made perfect, but God gave us a life. We should love what he's given us to do, even if we suffer. That's the point. Christians should love life more than anybody else. We know the world is a display of God's glory. We know it's marred by sin. We know it's scarred by suffering. But we see in the world many good things from God. Here's what Timothy, Paul said to Timothy. We know that everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. What does that mean? That means all the activities in life are good if received with thanksgiving. Sports are good. Gardening is good, I guess, if you like gardening. Technology's good. Don't be addicted to it. Don't let it run your life. But technology, I love technology. I'm a Mac fan now. Literature is good. DIY. Man, if you're a DIY person, God bless you. Come see me. Work is good. Playing cards is good. Food is good. Fashion is good. All these things are good because if we realize there are good gifts from God for our enjoyment. Our job is to enjoy life to the glory of God. Do you believe we can do that? You know, I never really enjoyed gardening. But if I met someone who did, boy, I should be interested in it, shouldn't I? If my next-door neighbor's into gardening, maybe I need to be interested in gardening and just love life with them. If we have an attitude of enthusiasm that shows that we understand the world that we live in, um, I think that's going to be real attractional to people. You know, there are some... Sports that maybe you don't really connect with, but you know, maybe you want to go be part of it anyway. There are things that we do here at the church. Maybe you're not really into that, but go be part of it anyway because you're going to meet people. You're going to grow together. You're going to show the world who you are. We're going to go out hiking this afternoon. I'm going to admit, Nick, I am not a great hiker, but I'm going because I want to hang out with you and you and you and everybody that's going to go so that hopefully we can show the world that we're different from them. And we can't do that if we sat home and watched the Chargers on football this afternoon. But we're going to go out and hike in the world. I'm going to show them who we are. That's why we do it. Thank you, Nick, for putting that together. It's awesome. Consider what opportunities you've been given to show the world who God is. So we've got to conclude today. I'm sorry we didn't go as maybe in deep as we could have, trying to close this out in a couple of weeks. Covered a lot of ground, a lot of ground today. I get that. But hopefully you've been challenged today. I'm praying that God is moving on your heart today to see the opportunities that we have in this culture to glorify God through how we live, to live good and attractive lives, even when suffering comes, even when they malign you because of what you won't do or what you do do. Even when we are marginalized and and pushed out from mainstream, it's okay. Let them push you out to mainstream, out of the mainstream. And as we strive to live life together and show the world who God is through our hope, let us pray that someone, someone today maybe, maybe tomorrow, will see how we live, to see how we love, to see how we persevere under the things that happens to us in this life, and we can give them an explanation of the hope that is in us.